2: Last episode on Thinking Straight. But I know these are really deep questions, but did you enjoy it sexually? I mean, did you get pleasure from it at all? To try and tell you that who you are, your sexuality, your identity, your orientation, that there's something broken and wrong with who you are, I think that is absolutely criminal. We know from research that the vast majority of conversion therapy takes place in a religious context.
3: The Lord can separate you from this kind of a lifestyle. It's not something that a person who's living in that kind of lifestyle has to go on in. That was a direct result of the abuse that he'd suffered, dressed up as pastoral care.
2: But… Many religious leaders oppose a ban that would include pray-away-the-gay-style therapy, saying it would impact on religious freedom and freedom of speech.
4: This is the banning of people telling their story. This is the banning of prayer in certain
2: circumstances. You're listening to Thinking Straight from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Sargent. Today, faith, the good, the bad, and the ugly
5: I mean, I've not been to church in a long time, but maybe I went... I think I went to a, a, a Christmas service a couple of years ago with my partner and her family.
2: This is Susie Ruffle, stand-up comedian, podcast host, and also a close friend. I'm sitting on a fold-down chair with Susie beside me. We're in a big room that looks like a lecture hall. There's a piano on the right side of the stage... People are scattered around us, social distancing. The church is close to Waterloo train station in a grey, urban part of London. But aside from the odd siren from the street outside, the atmosphere here is very peaceful.
5: But I was very aware of my gayness there. Very aware. Very aware of my gayness. You feel like it's really... Loud. Loud. And I do have the haircut. (laughs) You don't have the haircut. I do have the haircut. But it feels like here... I mean, it feels genuinely welcoming.
2: I dragged her along with me to a service a couple of Sundays ago.
3: How often do we take time to reflect on the character traits of Jesus and think, how are we going to put those into practice? How am I going to try more and more to be of the same mind, have the same love, develop the same spirit so I don't we just pause for a moment um, and I'll leave some quiet for you to just reflect on that.
2: Oasis is a Christian charitable trust founded in the 80s that has a number of churches and advertises itself as an inclusive LGBTQI+ friendly space. And after weeks of undercover conversion therapy, I thought maybe I was in need of a little pastoral support. After hearing so many stories about abuse and rejection within the church, I wanted to see for myself whether an inclusive space really existed. Religious lobby groups like the Evangelical Alliance argue that a total ban on conversion therapy would threaten religious freedoms. But is that true? Sitting in Oasis Church, an explicitly accepting place as the soft guitar music played, hearing readings from the Bible, I couldn't help but feel anxious.
5: Yeah, I felt like that.
2: Here's Susie again, after the service.
5: I know exactly what you mean. I felt like I was, I don't know, I guess I was there was still like an element of like, oh, I really want these people to like me. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that my sexuality doesn't mean that, but that's probably more, to, that's a lot more to do with me than them. No, I,
2: I couldn't quite let my guard down, but in that, it turns out, I am not alone.
3: Still, we get people who want to come and talk, but they still be scared to enter this building because they've got years and years of being betrayed and they can't quite believe Genuinely, they won't just be tolerated.
2: This is Steve Chalk.
3: I'm the founding minister of Oasis Church Waterloo. We are loud and proud about our inclusion because we think that there's no point in being quietly inclusive. That's what this church is, totally inclusive. Some years ago now, somebody in their late 30s made it into one of the services and I slowly got to know him. And uh, he told me this, that he'd grown up in a church and he'd been rejected because of his sexuality, ...told that he's not really gay, he's just same-sex attracted, which is a way again of... You're not gay, not really, you've just got to find your true self, you know, you're just same-sex attracted. It's a sin, it's a diversion, but you've got to get back on the right path.
2: The man Steve's telling me about had been banned from taking part in his church activities in any public way. So eventually, he found himself at the front steps of Oasis... But, he explained to Steve, even crossing that threshold had taken a lot of courage.
3: He'd come every Sunday morning for four months, and he'd stood at the bottom of the steps, and he'd listened to the congregation singing, and he'd heard that we were inclusive, but he couldn't find the courage to come up those steps. And even the songs that were being sung reminded him of the last context in which he'd sung them. That's the problem with church, you see. If we just sing a well-known hymn, people's mind is flipped back. It's a trauma that lives with you.
2: That man went on to join the church, even becoming a member of the leadership team.
3: And... uh, And then introduced his boyfriend, and he became part of the church. And this was before you could do a same-sex marriage, just before. And then one day, I went down the pub. There's a pub down there, and we were having a drink together one evening, the three of us. And then uh, they said to me, look, Steve, we're going to get a civil partnership. And then they said, and we were just wondering if, when we get that at the registry office, if afterwards we could come to the church and you would say a private little prayer for us they were facing me across this little table in the pub down there I looked at them both and know them both very well and I said no I said I will not say a private little prayer and their faces <laughs> fell like that And I said, why would I want to say a little private prayer for you? We're going to have a giant celebration and I will say some really public prayers for you. For you, your friends, your family, the whole church will celebrate this with you. And uh, that was a great day, wasn't it? It was a really fantastic, fantastic day. I mean, hundreds of people here. I said... It's not that you get married down the road and the church isn't allowed to marry you and we're doing some kind of blessing service afterwards. That's just a legal certificate you're getting down there. Your marriage is about a community, isn't it? It's It's about your parents. It's about your aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and all your friends together. It's about a celebration of your unity, your marriage in front of a community. That's what it's always been. And so we did that. And wasn't it wonderful?
4: The phrase I put on it was, we're threading the eye of a needle, and that's difficult.
2: This is Peter Linus.
4: I'm the UK Director of the Evangelical Alliance.
2: The Evangelical Alliance represents three and a half thousand evangelical churches across the UK. Peter is a regular figurehead on television and radio debates, well-spoken, articulate and not easily ruffled. I got in touch with Peter for this episode because he holds the very opposite opinion of somebody like Reverend Steve Chalk. And I wanted to know what rights groups like the EA think are being threatened.
4: We need to end the harmful and abusive, but also to allow the spiritual support and prayer. And to write that into legislation is proving very difficult. Otherwise, the government would have done it some time ago.
2: In the debate around a conversion therapy ban, Peter has become a central voice.
4: Things have undoubtedly been done historically that have been unhelpful. But at the same time, the government itself had said it wanted to safeguard spiritual support and prayer for those who wanted it. And we said that's right to do. And that does involve uh, basic human rights for those who are same-sex attracted, for those who are religious, for those who want to pursue a particular form of therapy. And we felt for a number of reasons, then it was important to make that case in the public square and say people should be free to choose the kind of support that they want in this moment. And that should include prayer support. For those who want it.
2: You've spoken a few times about spiritual support. I wondered how you would define that.
4: Well, interestingly, that's the phrase that came back from the government and it included prayer. And again, this is where uh, we're saying to the government, you want to ban this thing. You made the commitment. So you tell us your definition and what behaviours you think are problematic and how you're going to protect religious freedom. And then we'll engage with you in a consultation. And they have been, by their own admission, very reluctant to define this.
2: And those are questions that we're going to put to the government. But I wondered how you personally would describe pastoral support and prayer in this context.
4: So I'm not trying to be overly coy, but I am saying it is for the government and others who want to ban it to say what's problematic. There's a range of spiritual support. You're praying with somebody, somebody comes along and asks for prayer. Are we allowed to teach into this space? And then in line with that teaching, say to people, we offer support groups for those who are struggling with this. Can we pray with you? Can we bring you into a group where you can share with other people your experiences and they can share? All of those could come under spiritual support.
2: As an example, then, where would you stand on performing an exorcism on somebody to help rid them of unwanted same-sex attraction?
4: So without being kind of coy, define exorcism is my question.
2: Well, to speak to the experience of one of the survivors that we've talked with, he was brought up to the front of a, a church, had several men laying their hands on him, was told to cough up the demon inside him and broke down in tears and left the church feeling traumatised. I mean, that's, that's one example of several that we've heard.
4: So what we're working with some of our partners on is what does best practice look like in terms of prayer support? And what we were saying to government is, as and when you begin to be clear on what legislation looks like, then we can go to our members and others and recommend having heard from the experience of others, what would be good practice in a situation around prayer. The situation you've described, many people go, that seems wrong and that seems problematic, but it's quite a fine line potentially around somebody being prayed for and saying, I'd like to be prayed for in this way. And then the situation you've described,
2: as part of the evangelical community is, have you witnessed exorcisms yourself?
4: I haven't witnessed an exorcism. I'm aware that there are churches absolutely that would do exorcisms and there's a wide variety in terms of how exorcisms are practiced in the UK. I read the story of Adam Peaty, the Olympic swimmer, and some of his experience of being pushed to the brink, being sick after training sessions, being pushed right to the line to compete but he was pushing himself to limits. He was being sick. He was vomiting. Without context, one might think he was being like, who's doing that to him? How are they forcing this young person who's sort of consenting or not to go to those limits? So again, I think, you know, what's the person want as an outcome and what are they prepared to engage in in that moment?
2: I suppose the difference is you're trying to fundamentally change a core element of who somebody is. All evidence All research suggests so far that it's simply not possible to change someone's sexual orientation, which seems very different to somebody pushing their body physically to the limits. That seems quite clearly different to me. But have you met any survivors of conversion therapy yourself who feel traumatised by the practice?
4: Yes, I've met with people who who are opposed to the ban and who have come through experiences.
2: And how does that make you feel?
4: I am saddened by some of the practices that have been done in the church. Historically, because a number of those stories were coming from some time ago, the church has operated in a way that didn't understand well. Sexual orientation had a very simplistic view. The church has historically played uh, a role that was less than ideal. It did perpetuate stigma and discrimination, and it did not do things as well as it should have. I think the church needs to acknowledge that and own that. And is, is to an extent, but it's on the back foot in this debate. And some would rather we just didn't talk about conversion therapy. And I would rather I wasn't spending my time in many ways. But I am concerned as to where the government's going on the ban. This is the banning of people telling their story. This is the banning of prayer in certain circumstances. That's the concern.
2: Have you personally ever prayed for somebody to help them with unwanted same-sex attraction? With
4: unwanted same-sex attraction... Um, I'm trying to reflect if I actually have. I think I have on occasion. So most of the people I would speak to around this would be committing themselves to a life of celibacy. I'm aware of one or two who are married to somebody of the opposite sex. They remain same-sex attracted to be their primary attraction, but they have entered into a relationship with their wife. They both know what's going on. They have prayed that through, and they have committed to a marriage together, understanding that.
2: Do you feel that that person is satisfied and happy with their life?
4: Well, they tell me that they are.
2: So in in that vein, do you believe personally that it is possible to change your sexual orientation? Or do you think it's always a case that you would effectively suppress the way that you feel to become celibate?
4: I don't think they would describe it as suppress. So they would use like a word like sacrifice. But then their commitment is to follow Jesus who sacrificed his life. And we all sacrifice aspects of our
2: lives as Christians. I was interested to ask on your website, I'll read the section. It says... We encourage congregations to welcome and accept sexually active lesbians and gay men, however they should do so in the expectation that they will come in due course to see this need to be transformed. We urge gentleness, patience and ongoing pastoral care during this process and after a person renounces same-sex relations. So I'm a lesbian in a relationship with a woman and I wondered would I be welcome in one of your churches if I were to say that I wasn't willing to give up that relationship?
4: Everybody's welcome into uh, church. That's what we are encouraging our members. Some of our members are maybe a a little more hesitant, uh, feeling we were pushing the welcome. And then others were saying, but hold on, you're not affirming enough. And we're saying, well, the biblical text is saying we need to welcome everybody but it also draws some boundaries. So if you came along and said, "I'm in a, you know, I'm in a bigamous relationship, or having an affair, or I'm married to two different people at the same time," some of those things are perfectly legal in our society and culturally, some of them are very acceptable. But we'd be saying, "Well, here's what the Bible's articulating around relationships, and here's what it's saying in terms of one man and one woman." So if you want to continue to pursue a lifestyle outside of that, we're going to continue to encourage in this way, and the church is hopefully clear on that. You're perfectly free and entitled to do that. But you can't keep coming along to church and saying, well, I'm not going to give my money to Jesus. I'm not going to give any of my time, but I still expect you to let me do everything in church. It's like, well, no, we all sacrifice something. And what we come under is the authority of the Bible. I come along in a mess and Jesus transforms my life. There's a welcome. And then there's a discipleship journey of change and transformation.
2: The language, though, of transformation does suggest that you believe change is possible in terms of somebody's orientation.
4: So it's two different things. Is change possible in transformation? Absolutely. And it's interesting in a progressive agenda, in a progressive society, and one in which transformation is seen as a very positive word in many circumstances. In this moment, we draw a limitation on it. Um, so we're saying change in the nature of those desires, change in the strength of those desires, change in uh, active same-sex partnerships. And we're in our wording in, in that affirmation that it's the practice that the biblical text is clear about and not the orientation in and of itself because for many people that doesn't change.
2: It feels to me like living a sort of half-life, to know that I feel a certain way and to not be able to cultivate relationships based on that. It feels to me like it's an inherent sign of inequality.
4: So when the church is doing its job well, it is an extended family, it is an extended community. And some people have been really good at challenging the church to say, you don't have a good space for single people. Jesus was a single man, and yet we even in the church have said, oh, marriage, standard, traditional marriage between a man and a woman, that's the be-all and end-all. And actually, no, that's not what the Bible says. So we as a church, again, haven't done as good a job as we could at articulating a different vision where you can have incredible relationships that aren't based on sex, but the Bible does put parameters and limits on what those sexual relationships can look like.
2: Taking sex out of it, though, and sexual relationships, There is a fundamental inequality in that you have one set of rules that applies to one part of the population and another that applies to anybody who falls within the LGBT plus community. So how can you preach equality and yet not have the same rules for everybody?
4: So the equality agenda is a fundamentally Christian idea. In fact, the whole idea that everybody is equal is is uniquely Christian. We have a very modern notion that says, but hold on, if you're saying I can't have sex with who I want with, now you've undermined my equality.
2: But it is undermining equality because you would say to me, I can't fall in love with a woman and marry her. Whereas if I were to say I'm going to fall in love with a man and marry him, that would be allowed. So there is inequality.
4: No, because everybody can potentially fall in love. I think, again, it's how we're defining equality in this moment. Everybody's entitled to get married. We can all get married, but we can't all follow through all of our desires. If I'm desired to to be married to three different women at, at the same time, if I was in particular brands within the, the Muslim faith or within the uh, Mormon tradition, that would be considered okay. It's not in the Christian tradition. So I can come along and say, well, that's my desire. That's what I would like. Equality demands I can be married to as many people as I want. am like, well, no, it doesn't. Nor do, does equality demand that you can marry who you want. We always put limits on marriage. We limit the number of people you can be married to. We limit some of the relationships you can be married uh, in terms of cousins. And we limit the age at which you can be married as a society. Everybody draws lines on that. That's not an inequality. If I say I love my cousin is it, are you, and you don't allow me to marry my cousin, have you breached equality? Are you anti-equality and limiting me from doing that?
2: I don't see how you can say everybody has the right to get married and then would deny a person the right to marry somebody of the same sex.
4: But do you believe that I should be allowed to marry three different people
2: at the same time? I don't have a problem with it. It doesn't bother me because it doesn't impact my life. And I think if everybody is consenting and nobody's being hurt... Do you
4: believe I should be allowed to marry a 15-year-old as long as they consent?
2: I don't think that's the same because... I would expect that there would be some emotional damage caused by that age gap in that relationship. And I don't and I, I think it's very concerning that you would equate same-sex marriage with you marrying a minor.
4: that that, that is not what I'm doing. Oh, that guys that's that's not a oh, I mean that, that's just a completely unfair accusation. It's very difficult to have the conversation to be honest. I mean, we try and extend ourselves out. And then as soon as you try and make any kind of analogy into space, somebody just makes a kind of relatively cheap job back. So it, it just becomes very difficult to do. And tell me why, that's, why you think that's justifiable to, d- to push back in there.
2: Because I'm just asking you about the principles of equal marriage. And I didn't at any point put words in your mouth or, or ask anything leading. It's simply a conversation about why it wouldn't be acceptable for me to marry a woman. That's that's all all I was asking to discuss.
4: I'm in no way drawing that analogy, that that being a lesbian is equivalent to marrying a minor. But do we draw limits on marriage? Everybody draws limits on marriage. It feels like a daily meal jibe to a kind of more academic response to what we're trying to do. That That's where I trip and go, oh, right, so we're in a different conversation. I'll, I'll reframe back. That's where I, I get tripped.
2: This conversation is not me trying to trip you up. I was responding to something that you'd said.
4: I, I don't think you're trying to trip me up in terms of catch me out journalistically. I don't, if we're having the serious conversation, I mean, I'm trying to engage with you on terms. I'm speaking more freely than I normally would. Mm-hmm. I'm So I'm trusting you as well. So I'm not trying to be frustrating. And I'm like, sorry, I maybe have come across a bit over the top there. But I just, this is a taxing conversation for us. There's stuff out there that's been unhelpful. But there is also a desire from some people to specifically limit the church in this area and go hard after fairly mainstream beliefs around sexuality. And that's a very difficult place to be because I think it will limit religion.
2: You'll hear from the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion and Belief in just a moment. But first...
3: Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: to find out if it's right for you.
6: In many parts of the world, the LGBT community are still exposed to all sorts of violations of their rights. This is Ahmed Shaheed. I'm the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief.
2: Ahmed Shaheed is one of the most senior authorities on religious rights. And in April of this year, he addressed UK MPs calling on them to ban conversion therapy in full.
6: The reason is if you look at what's happening around the world with regard to various forms of conversion therapies, it's clear that it's a very harmful practice. And the data from the UK itself and from elsewhere again demonstrates that not only does it reject the equal rights of LGBT plus persons, but also ends up exposing them to a range of harms, ruining the quality of their lives, and also in many cases, leaving them vulnerable to contemplate actually to carry out a suicide attempts as well. Of course, Britain has a much better record than many. Of course, across the world, the types of Practices that are covered in this goes from the most violent things like you know rape, electric shock to milder forms as it were to forms of prayer. They still end up leaving those subjected quite distraught and distressed. so there is a need even in the u k to look at this practice.
2: The Evangelical Alliance wrote an open letter to the British government, and in that letter they said it's essential that those who experience same-sex attraction are free to pursue and to receive support to help live in accordance with their beliefs. And I wondered if you felt there is any argument to say that individuals should be allowed to have the choice to attempt to change or to suppress their sexuality and where you stood on that.
6: I think the concern expressed by the Evangelical Alliance can be addressed in in a ban that is still total. That doesn't mean that state has prohibited the belief b- being spoken of, but just prohibits the practices which causes harm. So you have things like polygamy, for example. There can be scriptural warrant for that in some cases. Even slavery could have found a scriptural warrant. Beliefs keep changing. You know, faith-based beliefs are not static. They're very diverse. And there are a wide range uh, of such beliefs. And state should not be in the business of A, suppressing such beliefs, B, Privileging some over the others. I think so long as there's an open-ended discussion, exploration of one's uh, sexual identity and and sexual orientation, that should not come within this ban. What is problematic is a discussion that has a foregone conclusion that you are to come out of it in a different way. And that is where I think the trouble lies. The discussion doesn't begin with the view that this person ought to change to become a heterosexual cisgender person.
2: Unlike the Evangelical Alliance, Ahmad Shahid advocates for a total ban on conversion therapy, including the non-coercive kinds, i.e., when the subject has agreed or even wants to take part in the conversion therapy.
6: Because it can be harmful, and whether the motivation is religious or otherwise is immaterial. Coercive itself is too limiting here, because the problem here actually is when someone is targeted with whatever form of therapy, as it were, to change their identity, change their orientation, an underlying unspoken, or perhaps even spoken, implication of leaving that open is to argue that there is something wrong with one's sexual orientation, or that the LGBT community somehow doesn't deserve equal dignity, which is absolutely, you know, a horrendous claim to make
2: this ban may continue to allow pray-away-the-gay styles of therapy. If we're only talking about coercive practices and we're continuing to allow faith leaders to pray for somebody's sexuality to change, could you see it having any real impact?
6: I think that in the British context, that would be a disastrous outcome because what we are talking in the UK context are not the extreme forms of, you know, this therapy. It's the washrooms that come with forms of prayer, and if we allow individuals to be left exposed, left vulnerable, to pressure from faith-based authorities or uh, to change their sexual orientation, then we haven't achieved anything. I think the objections raised from various faith-based organizations really uh, miss the issue here.
2: In short, a total ban would continue to protect the rights of individuals to believe whatever they want to believe. It would only be applied when the belief becomes an action that harms other people. Another concern raised by the Evangelical Alliance. In the same letter, they said that a ban which extends to prayer may see pastors locked up and criminalised. I just wondered if you thought there was any world where that was a real possibility.
6: I don't think so. I mean, I think the law can be very clear. It would not criminalize a religious faith-based actor, speaking of their beliefs on what the scriptures say and what their desired beliefs are. There's therefore no question of accidentally falling the fall of the law here. It requires a deliberate, intentional attempt to change someone's sexual orientation or identity. See, once religious freedom it has a wide scope but it is limited at the point where it begins to harm other people. And and that's not rocket science. That's the established you know, law for a long time. So one can speak their views so long as that does not harm other people. And there shouldn't be a law that protects one's rights that can cause harm to the others, whether it is religious rights or anything else. The freedom I am protecting around the world is freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This includes the belief in you know, non-religion. In other words, be free from religious beliefs and to espouse humanistic views, espouse philosophical beliefs as well. So one's beliefs are so vital to one's identity. And one thing to recognize, of course, is that everybody holds some belief. Even having no belief is also a belief. And that is so important to determine the identity and shape in their lives. And that should be given absolute protection.
3: We had a communion service here. It was a snowy evening, I remember.
2: Here's Steve Chalk again, founding minister of Oasis.
3: And sitting at the back of the church was someone who was very much part of the church, being part of the church for a long time. But I was leading the service and um, he started crying. And I thought, oh, no. Now, what you need to know about him is... Gay, grew up inside a church that opposed who he was, became alcoholic and anorexic, and had never had a physical relationship with anyone up until that point in his life. He was just scared stiff of everyone. So at the end, I went and I sat with him and I said, I'm really sorry, is it something I said tonight upset you and he said no he said as I was listening to you and in this place and taking communion I suddenly realized something and I said what is it he said my problem has never ever been that I'm gay my problem has always been that I grew up evangelical that's what's been killing me At the age of 13, he had told his youth leader that he was struggling with his sexuality. He was then prayed for. He went through an exorcism. They cast demons out of him. All sorts of things for five years from the age of 13 to 18 when he tells me he finally found the courage to walk out of the church and never come back. But by then, he was anorexic and alcoholic and that was a direct result of the abuse that he'd suffered dressed up as pastoral care.
2: The idea of starting to go through that at the age of 13 is so shocking.
3: But it happens I think around the slow dawning of puberty because that's when you become self-aware.
2: What started as a charity to support local communities has grown into a network of schools, churches and community projects across the country. Right now, Oasis are responsible for 32,000 children and 6,000 members of staff. It was a bit of a personal revelation for me to witness the support that LGBTQ people were gaining from this church. Being here in person made it all the more devastating to think of the things that people have gone through, supposedly in the name of religion. It's dangerous to dismiss prayer of this kind as a softer, less harmful enemy. Words can be far worse than punches. They form the basis of internalized homophobia and transphobia that can take years and years to dismantle. There is so much good to be gained from faith, particularly the sense of community that it provides. To make change, though, you need brave leaders. Steve's charity has lost millions of pounds of funding because of his loud and proud stance on inclusivity. It's not easy. And he's a trailblazer. But that's the hard route we must take because silence is complicity And young people will continue to die in the name of religion until we tell them, vocally, that they are good and loved just as they are. In response to this investigation, Carol said... I have never held myself out as a provider of, nor do I offer counselling to any client with the aim to change their sexuality. To the best of my knowledge, there are no UK therapists who have ever described themselves as conversion therapists. The term conversion therapy is an imposed term, is misleading and forces an implied definition of conversion. Next time on Thinking Straight. Just saying trans women are women, for many people that is something which just throws up this the emotive debate
4: and yet for me that's just a fundamental truth of who I am.
3: It is based on the fundamental principle that being lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender is wrong, is a flaw, a failing,
2: something that needs to be corrected. Why are we
0: continuing to Listen to perpetrators of abuse. It is abusive. There's no other way of looking at it. It's homophobic and it's transphobic. Whether or not it's religiously motivated or not, I don't really care, it's still wrong.
2: You've been listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to the Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid, with editorial support from Asia Fuchs. The series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kiseltuk. The next episode of Thinking Straight will be in the Stories of Our Times feed next Friday. You can also find the series in the reporter feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116 123. Or switchboard, the LGBT helpline, on 0300 330 0630. Open from 10am till 10pm every day. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.